Welcome to the Blister Podcast, a program dedicated to interesting people, the great outdoors, and a bunch of other stuff we like. I'm Jonathan Ellsworth, the founder of Blister, and as always, you can check out everything we're doing and reviewing over at blisterreview.com. Last Thursday evening, we held the fourth installment of our monthly Blister Speaker Series at Western Colorado University, where we host influential figures of the outdoor industry right here in the beautiful Gunnison Valley of Colorado. Our guest this time was Ashley Kornblatt, who has one hell of an interesting resume. Ashley went from Arkansas to Dartmouth to Wall Street, to being the president of Merlin Metalworks Bikes, to being the chair of IMBA, the International Mountain Bicycling Association, And Ashley currently owns Western Spirit Cycling, a guiding company based in Utah. She is the co-founder of Outer Bike. She is the founder and managing director of Public Land Solutions. She is on the Recreation Advisory Board for the Outdoor Industry Association. And she is a member of the Mountain Bike Hall of Fame. But what's maybe even more impressive than Ashley's CV is the specific work she's been doing for years now, on important issues surrounding public lands, including her work to make clear to more people why public lands are such a critical issue for all of us, why it is such a crucial component of economic development in so many places, and for any of us who are passionate about mountain biking. Because as Ashley likes to say, without access to trails on public lands, where exactly do you think you're going to be able to go ride that bike of yours? In other words, it's time for all of us to get clear on the many important issues and sides of the public lands debate, and this is not an issue where any of us get to comfortably sit on the sidelines. There is real work to be done here, and we all need to be informed and to get involved. And on that note, let's get to my conversation with Ashley Kornblatt, live from Western Colorado University. Hi, everybody. Thank you for coming out. I can't believe this is our last Blister Speaker Series of the year. My, how the time flies. But I just want to say thanks to all of you who have come out to these. I've had a phenomenal time, and I've learned a ton. So I appreciate you giving me a platform to learn a lot these past four talks. And um, I'm also incredibly grateful and impressed by the quality of the questions we get every time. Uh, So... This is your your fourth and last time for this year to uh, to blow our minds with the with the great questions. So uh, let's keep that streak going. But tonight I get to talk to one of my new favorite people in the world. And the backstory here is I actually think maybe Laurel Runcy was the first person who ever asked me, "Do you know Ashley Cornblatt?" And I said, "I don't." And she's like, Ashley's amazing. And it's like, okay, you file that away. And then somebody else mentioned Ashley. And I was like, yes, I know of Ashley, (laughs) thanks to Laurel. And then I found out that two of our reviewers at Blister were like, Ashley's my favorite person in the world. And so I'm like, what is (laughs) happening here? And I, I need to figure out how to get this person into my life. And so... Ashley and I had a chance, I think we first connected it at Outdoor Retailer, and it was an amazing conversation, and each conversation has been subsequently amazing, and so I'm delighted that she's able to join us here at Western, and um, you're about to find out, so I'm not, I'm not even going to do the long introduction, <laughs> I'm, we're just going to get into it, and 
Once we do talk a bit about Ashley's very interesting and impressive background, we're going to try to do a bit of a crash course on some public lands issue, which is not the best understood topic, I think. And so Ashley has a whole lot of experience and uh, expertise on some of these issues. So again, I'm going to learn a lot tonight, and I think some of you will too. And so Ashley, thank you so much for being here. Thank you for having me. So we're going to try to move through some of this fast so that we get to our crash course uh, in public lands issues. But let's start with where you grew up. Arkansas. One word answer. She's really, she's a pro. Uh, in Arkansas, what were you into as a kid? Ballet. This is perfect. This is going to be the shortest speaker series. Um, where'd you go to school? I went to Dartmouth and I uh, really benefited from Title IX because it was the first group of women. And I, my roommate was from Boise and she had these skis she was a ski racer and she's like, you should be a ski racer too. Here, take these 195s, my GS skis and these Lang boots that are a little too big for you and go ski on the ice at Killington. But somehow I made the team. I guess they really, really needed more girls. <laughs> what did you study in school? Government and classical archeology. span after undergrad, you made the decision to go to business school, and I haven't heard, I don't know the story about why, among all the things you could have done, why go to business school? Well, at Dartmouth, they have a, a outing club. It's one of the first college outing clubs, and now a lot of places have them, especially here, which is great. And they would do, um, there was a thing called the Freshman Trips Program, and I ended up running that um, as an undergrad. They hire an undergrad to run the program and take 900 kids hiking. So I really enjoyed doing that, and I was thinking about law school or business school, and one of my advisors said, don't apply to both because then you'll just go to the best one you get into. You need to decide. And so for me, business was definitely made more sense. There's um, some times now when I wish I had a law degree too, but uh, uh, my partner at Public Land Solutions does, thank goodness. So I went to business school, and when I was there, it was very much go straight to Wall Street. Like it was a, it was a, that's what everyone did. And so then all of a sudden I'm in New York City and I'm spending every weekend dragging my bike or my skis out of the city and hating it. And like coming back on Sunday night, like I can't believe I have to stay here for five days now. <laughs> so it was clear to me that, you know, the city person wasn't the right choice. So one thing led to another and I got hired to run a bike factory and we made titanium bikes. And people were like, you're leaving Wall Street? Like, how will you ever succeed? Like, Wall Street's the coolest. And I'm like, yeah, not really. So, um, and the bike factory was really popular. It was, it's called Merlin, and we made titanium bikes. And it was before carbon fiber had sorted itself out. So titanium was really the best material. And for a little while there, we, we really did make the best bikes in the world. It was, it was quite fun. We, uh, we, we had sponsored the team that Lance Armstrong was on. And then Greg Lamond called and said he wanted bikes. And we had people waiting like eight months to buy bikes. And I'm like, you know, I don't really need to give away any more bikes. And they said, fine, we'll buy them. So the, it was back in the day when like the intercom came on your phone and there was a reporter from Bicycling Magazine in my office and my intercom thing said, Bob Lamond, Greg Lamond's dad is online too. And the reporter was like, why is he calling you? And I'm like, oh, you know, nothing. And uh, the next Bicycling Magazine cover had the bikes Lamond pays to ride because we had told him if he wants them, he has to buy them. So 
It went, it went well, quite well for a while. Backtrack just a second. Why would someone, you're on Wall Street, how did they pinpoint you to come run this bike company? Yeah. I worked for a political campaign between undergrad and grad school, which is an amazing thing to do. Like, if you work for any candidate and you help with fundraising or um, on the ground stuff, especially now, you meet a million people and those people um, know other people and you get exposed to a lot of different possible jobs. And so the people that I met through that campaign basically called me and said, we, this person who had founded Merlin needed help and we've decided he needs an MBA. And if you don't want the job, you better start inter introducing us to your friends so we can, like they were on a mission to find mm -hmm. somebody. So. so what happens after Merlin? Well, um, we, uh, we sold Merlin and I was trying to decide what to do. And I ended up um, in Moab and my family was like, I don't know, we think she's on sabbatical. We're not really sure why she's there. And um, I uh, met the founder of a company there that does an outfitter, a bike outfitting company that takes people into the national parks and national forests on five-day bike trips. And one thing led to another, and I, I, right around then is when I met my husband. So we bought this company, and it was quite small at the time, and now we've grown it quite a bit. It's called Western Spirit Cycling, and... Uh, we have an amazing group of guides and really fun customers too. So it's um, it's really pretty darn fun. Like you're out there and all you have to do is eat, sleep, ride your bike and enjoy the scenery. And it's um, it, we have a lot, we have something like 60% and some of your 70% of our customers return the next year. So, um, and what's been great about it is I've learned so much about all these different communities where we work. We started just in Moab and a few other spots, and now we are one of the largest permit holders on the recreation public land system. So um, that really led us to be involved in a lot of different communities here, Sun Valley, Bend, Bozeman, all these different communities that have um, really turned to recreation as their major economic driver. So this whole debate about public lands and the issues surrounding it, is it fair to say maybe these were not issues that had previously been on your radar? It is because you now owned a guiding company where it turns out you're doing some peddling around and guiding on public lands that suddenly you had very clear reasons to learn more about these yeah. issues. Yeah. So if you do anything commercial on the public lands, you have to have a permit. So that means you need to get to know the rangers. And when you start learning about how the public lands work and how do they decide what's gonna happen where, I mean, how, how many of you guys are mountain bikers? Okay, so now, tell the truth about this. Now, your first bike ride, do you remember your first bike ride? Do you have any idea who owned the land where you rode? Anyone? Okay. <laughs> so, this is a problem, right? Because our sport depends on access to public land. So what we learned at Merlin, and I'm sorry, at Western Spirit, was um, all about that relationship between sort of there's the community, there's the land manager, there's the trail group that's trying to build trails, right? And oftentimes 
there's real disconnects. Like the trail, somebody wants to build trails and they don't even know they're supposed to get permission. So then they start, or maybe they know, but they ignore it for a minute. And they go build some trails. And then there's the community that there, you know, there's a relationship between the land manager and the community, but it's pretty informal. It's not like, but the decisions that the BLM made in Moab, for example, have had a huge effect on how the community, what direction the community has gone. So that was one of the things we learned is that we, that there is that disconnect between the land managers and the community, and that's an issue. I want to make sure that tonight we are kind of framing this debate, um, what the issues even are, who the different, you know, stakeholders or the various sides are in this. So let's talk a little bit about who some of the traditional different groups are with different viewpoints on this uh, notion of public land. Sure. Okay. So this, if I've spent a lot of time now, we started a nonprofit called Public Land Solutions. And my business partner there, he's um, been the attorney for the Access Fund. And he's great because I see things and I'm like, wow, that looks great. We should support it. And he says, we should read it first. Like, okay, good idea. So, so I'm the entrepreneur and he's the lawyer and we've been doing quite a few different projects. But a lot of what we do is working with communities that, is, that are looking to pivot from dependence on resource extraction like oil and gas and coal to recreation. So when, when a community is trying to figure out what they want to do, you end up with some real, especially today, right, polarized opinions. And so I've spent a lot of time thinking about the people who really don't like public land and why that is. Where did that come from? And so if you really think back, like for most of human history, the best way to earn a living is to own land, right? Like if he was the Duke and I'm the peasant, his family's getting richer and richer because they own land and I'm getting nothing. So then we come to America and there's all this land. Woohoo, everyone can own land, right? But it turns out that some of it's kind of hard to make a living off of. Like you can't really grow vegetables on a cliff or in a desert, right? Or run cows, like, well, we try to run cows in the desert, but that's a different story. But so a lot of the land didn't get homesteaded. And when it became, um, when Theodore Roosevelt came along and started creating the national forests and the BLM and the parks, he was uh, sending rangers out to the West and if your family's been in the Gunnison Valley and you've survived the last 50 years or 100 years and you've been doing your best to, to do that, and then all of a sudden this um, college kids show up from the East Coast and say, we're the man, we're in charge. Like it started off on a bad note, right? So this, this um, our attitudes about public land have really changed. And the pivot that's happening right now today is that Communities that have access to shared public land where they can have recreation assets like bike trails and access to river and climbing and that type of thing, those communities are prospering. So we're going from a time when private land ownership was the best way to generate wealth to a new time when prosperous communities really are sharing public lands. And so this is a big pivot for a lot of people whose grandfathers told them, God damn the federal government, we can't make a living because the federal government owns all the land. So, and when you, when you add on, when you layer in climate into this conversation, the idea that the only honest way to make a living is to take something out of the land, right? Like, that's service business, that's kind of shaky. I'm not sure that's really legit. 
like serving, you know, providing services. But like being a farmer or a rancher or a miner, that's an honest way to make a living. So these attitudes of changing uh, the way people think about the land around them is a huge moment now. You know, it's a big part of the moment that we're in because it's going to really dictate what happens with climate change in addition to the recreation economy. Land ownership rights. I mean, do we, you want to say more than what you've just kind of said on that topic? So, so here we are in America, and we have all this public land, and it's sort of in three categories, the forests, the national parks, and the Bureau of Land Management, right? And there's, so how do we decide who gets to do what? And for a long time, especially on BLM land, it was pretty much a free-for-all. You could go wherever you wanted on whatever vehicle you wanted. You could have cross-country travel. It was like, fine. And then it was really less than 20 years ago that the BLM said, actually, we should stay on the trail and we should start to figure out like where the trail should be. And travel management plans started to happen. And so there are a lot of laws. The most important one is called FLIPMA. I can't do the acronym, but it, it, is, it is the governing, it is the law that says how we're going to decide who does what. And then there's the National Environmental Policy Act, NEPA, that tells you, okay, every time you make a change to what, who's doing what on public land, you have to study the environmental impacts of it. So we've got this whole system of laws that decide how we as a democracy are going to decide who gets to do what on the public land. So that's sort of the basis. Now, the mountain bike community did a great job of, of understanding this system and working within it and learning how to build trails uh, within the NEPA system almost everywhere. There's a few problem spots, but almost everywhere that, that worked out. But, but, the, but a lot of times, because so few people do know who owns the land where they're riding or climbing or whatever, um, there's this biz, big disconnect like, shouldn't I be able to do whatever I want, wherever I want? And, uh, and don't I, I mean, I, ha, I should fight for my rights. I have a right to ride my bike. I should fight for my rights. Well, there is no right to ride your bike in the Constitution. I've checked. <laughs> so it's a problem. So how do you, in a democracy, because it is the, the way we're going to govern these lands is through the democracy, how do you make sure that you're going to uh, be able to do, keep doing the thing that you want to do? You need to work through the system and not against it or not, or not be oblivious to it. That's our real problem. Trail access versus wildlife habitat protection, right? Right. Two, I think, pretty legitimate concerns that people have. And yet this ends up, I think, often you know, putting people or the different, those sort of two groups at odds with each other. Mm -hmm. We've had an interesting conversation this afternoon, actually, about this. And I'd like to hear you talk a bit about that. Well, the, the pro whenever you get to a problem, and this is kind of true in most of life, right? When you get to that place where you're just stuck, like, I want this and they want that and we don't agree, right? You have to back up and you have to look at the bigger picture. And so there is a project uh, over on the West End in Nucla and Natarita where they were looking at building new trails and a lot of exciting stuff happening over there. Um, and one of the people's really, one of the, really um, motivated community members wants to build trail. And right now he sees his problem. He's like, I just want to build these trails. And he sees his problem as these wildlife people because they're kind of pushing back on where he wants to build the trail. But what, what the work that we're doing is where we kind of ask everyone to back up and look at the bigger picture. So 
if there is existing oil and gas, if there are oil and gas leases that could be developed there, we need to acknowledge those because we probably put, shouldn't put the trailhead right on top of those, right? And um, if there are uh, hunting outfitters that are there or there are fishing people that want to go or there are motorized trails, like you really have to back up and look at the whole picture of the community, all the different stakeholders. So we've come up with some ways to do iterative mapping, except a lot of people can't say iterative, especially some county commissioners. And um, so, so we call it layered mapping, but we just go through and look at each group and part of the way that we're working on getting folks to communicate better, um, you know, a lot of collaborative training talks about find your shared values first. What are your shared values? And then you can work together. It's like, forget the shared values. We're looking for shared outcomes. So we don't judge anyone in the room. Like, whatever you think about base jumping, we're not going to tell you not to go. Whatever, if that's your thing, go do it. But we just need to know where are you going to go base jumping? How do you get there? How do you get out of there? And where on the map is that? And how close is that to the oil well or the wildlife or the bike trail? And doing that detailed work on the ground has really built some great coalitions and allowed the communities to have sort of a unified view of what they want their future to be that includes everyone. So then everyone's getting something. Not in, No one gets 100%, but we've noticed that if everyone gets to around 80 85%, they start to behave much better. To talk a little bit about the, you know, again, I think this, it, it sounds like it's kind of a 50-50 thing or something when we're talking about issues of trail access and then concerns about areas that we might want to preserve um, as you know, wilderness areas or wildlife habitats, et cetera, you were mentioning some pretty interesting statistics on that actual ratio. There's been a little fight over bikes and wilderness now for a little while. Um, and when you really look at that, um, right now today, there's something like 100,000 miles of ready-to-ride bike trail in the U.S., how many of those miles do you think are threatened by wilderness? Like the bike press right now would have you think, a bunch are threatened, we're terrified. The reality is it's less than 2,000 miles out of 100,000. So part of the challenge has to do with really understanding what's out there on the ground and what could be there. We're poised to build another 100,000 miles of trail. But it's kind of in this moment, especially in the moment of climate change, do you really want to be the enemy of the conservation community? Like, do, do we, does the recreation industry as a whole want to be fighting with conservation? And uh, that has happened quite a bit. There's, you know, if you look at the past, every time that the conservation community and the recreation community fight, the people who win are the resource extraction people. So the oil and gas guys are fine with us duking it out with the conservation people. So it's, we're at this moment where it's, um, there's, there's a lot of really great opportunity. There's five or six new climate bills in D.C. that have to do with different things that, that concern public land that could be really great for recreation. Um, one of them has to do with the roadless rule, which is um, something that happened during the Clinton administration. It sounds really wonky, but stay with me for a second. Like, it's, it's making it so that we are not, there's certain areas of the national forest where we're not gonna build any more roads. Doesn't mean we can't build some trails, 
but we're not going to build roads. And some of the best mountain biking places or, or any kind of adventure places are places that don't have too many roads, right? So, um, so that's a bill that the recreation community needs to support. So one of the things we're working on is trying to kind of package those um, really wonky, kind of hard to describe bills into a sort of climate recreation package that then everyone could get behind. So that's, we, it, that's our, the biggest challenge on the climate stuff has to do with it's incremental, really wonky things that you got to do. And each one of its, in and of itself is pretty boring and kind of not that exciting. But we're not going to solve climate in one thing. It's definitely going to be incremental. So figuring out how to celebrate those incremental things and communicate them and for people to get excited about when we do have an incremental moment, that's going to be our, the trick. When did you start talking to people in D.C. or showing up in, in D.C.? The first time I think I went, I went all by myself. I got asked to go and testify about oil and gas and trails. And I didn't have a coach and I didn't know anything about what it was going to be like. And I wrote my own testimony and it was crazy. Um, and I got attacked by this congressman from New Mexico who was like, you make money off people going mountain biking. I'm like, yeah. He's like, and how do you think they get there? They fly in airplanes. And what do you think runs those airplanes? Oil and gas. So, you know, and I was like, Ugh. so it went from that moment to starting to learn through a couple different ways. Um, IMBA, the International Mountain Bicycling Association, and um, a bunch of cycling organizations used to do this um, big event in D.C. where uh, we would have a thousand people come and advocate for bikes. But it was it was all kind of intertwined. It was bike paths and transportation and mountain biking. And it got a little too unwieldy. Um, and now I work with the Outdoor Industry Association, which is um, uh, so many companies in the Outdoor Industry Association are really taking a stand on climate and working on access and uh, um, and public land issues. And so, um, so there was there's a lot of different ways to do it. But the thing about lobbying that's really fun, and Dave Weens knows this, that. Um, like the congressmen want to hear from you. Like lobbying is turned into some kind of evil word, but really all it is is you go to D.C. and you explain to the staffer why that roadless law would be a good thing for your community because there's a roadless area and there's recreation happening there, and so he should support the bill. Like, will ya? And if you came all the way there to ask him, guess what they say a lot of the time? Okay, we didn't know about that bill, but because one of my constituents has come all the way to D.C. to ask me to support it, I'm willing to do it. So the government is run by the people that show up. So it's really pretty amazing what you can do by getting involved and uh, learning a few wonky things. You don't have to go too deep, but like learning the bill number or something like that. That's all you got to do. And just having a few, some people think like, I've got to be an oil and gas expert to go talk about recreation and oil and gas. Not really. If you know about recreation, like we took the mayor of Fruta to DC recently. She was awesome. She doesn't know that much about oil and gas. She knows a lot about what mountain biking has done for her town. So she did, she crushed it. When was your scary interview with the jerk New Mexico? <laughs> a, a long time ago. Um, 1930? No. Okay. Just <laughs> Not, trying to get a ballpark here. It, it probably was around like 2005 or something. Okay. Yeah. And are you, is the amount of time you're spending talking to congressmen or senators, is that 
ramping up or is it actually stay kind of consistent? We do a lot of that. In fact, that guy, his name is Pierce. He ran for governor and lost. He lost the seat in Congress and he lost the governorship yeah. in New Mexico. And the governor of New Mexico now is amazing. And she is all about recreation. Mm. So there's progress. Mm. Um, but yeah, you, you have to, I mean, we live in a democracy. Our elected officials are going to make a lot of decisions. It, it, all the way from county council people to the the White House. I mean, all, everyone in between. There, there's definitely. Um, if you want to make a difference, those are the people making the decisions. And it, it, like when a person gets elected as a county commissioner, they don't get staff. They don't really get. They don't, they may know nothing. So if you go to them and help them and help them learn, you can make a huge difference. So. It, it is, uh, I mean, we have this democracy and we elect people, but we don't really train them, which is why it's so important for us to be, if you care about this and you want to move the needle, that's why you got to talk to them. Talking about the work you do with the Outdoor Industry Association, you're on the board? I'm on an advisory board. Advisory board. The Recreation Advisory Board. They have a climate board. They have a sustainability board. They've got a couple different groups. I wanted to hear you talk a bit about you have worked closely with some of the very big companies that we all know in this outdoor space. And speak to a little bit about if there are things you think that some of those companies are doing well, and then some of the things you think they could be doing differently or better. So for businesses, right, a really comfortable space is marketing, right? Every business has a marketing campaign. It has a message. We're going to stay on the message. We're going to be true to the message. It has a budget. It has a timeline. We're in charge. We're going to do these things over this time period. So one of the easiest things for a company to do is, is cause marketing. We're going to support the Bears Ears, crazy example. And we're, we're going to go, and we have a campaign, and we're going to, um, make people care about the Bears Ears. We're going to educate people about the Bears Ears, which is a piece of land in southern Utah. <laughs> and um, there are these cute little ears, but that's just a small part of it. Um, and uh, uh, um, so you, and this happens in a lot of different ways. Or they pick a river, or they pick clean air, or they pick something, and they do a marketing campaign. So that can be incredibly effective. It gets the word out. It raises awareness. It gets people to care. Um, which is great. The challenge is government is nothing like business. Government is this ongoing process of trying to do something by committee. And you make a little progress and you realize you left out this guy, you got to go back and you got to get him and you got to bring them along and then you make a little progress, you got to go back. So it's, it's government and business are very different. So government is a constant process. So one of the companies that had a really good cause marketing campaign um, for monuments, national monuments, um, they, you know, they did a lot of great marketing stuff. And they went to West Virginia and they said there was an area there called the birthplace of rivers. And they went to the people in West Virginia and they had their campaign. And they're like, don't you guys want clean water? We should protect. We, don't you want clean water? And they said, no, we want dinner. Like, it, it, it was just a total miss because those people were in a world of hurt. There was no, there was no, the Venn diagram was not overlapping. And uh, so that, we, we got asked to come and sort of help with that. And we pivoted the whole thing to economic development. 
And that's what our nonprofit Public Land Solutions is working at that angle. We work a lot with um, all different players from the oil and gas companies to the conservation communities, um, but we're, we're focusing on helping communities make that pivot and be sustainable. But so another way that companies act, like I can talk about um, one of the companies that's done some amazing stuff is Osprey over in Cortez, the PAC company. So they get it that government is a process. So they've done a little bit of cause marketing campaigns, but they actually, they step up and talk when, when the need is there. So for example, there's a rule about how much methane oil and gas wells can emit. And it's kind of a lot right now. We kind of want it to be less and it was less and now it's more again, but whatever. And uh, when it was coming online, um, we asked one of the big companies to call their senator and say, hey, please vote to keep the methane rule in place. And they were like, that doesn't really fit with our cause marketing campaign. We don't really know that much about methane. I mean, it was one phone call. They could have sent one email and made a difference, but they were like sketched, right? Osprey, on the other hand, I called Osprey one time and said, it was on the methane rule too. It was right at the end of the Obama administration. I'm like, I'm going to DC. Um, Auden Schindler, who's the sustainability director for Aspen, is coming with me, but we need a business person. Can you come? And the Osprey guys were like, ooh, Sam can't go. Rob can't go. Andrew can go. Andrew's in Vietnam. Will His wife can send his suit to the hotel in, in, in D.C. You email him the briefing stuff. He'll read it. He'll get there. He'll put on the suit. He'll rock the meeting. And that's what they did. It was awesome. So it's really just like... You can do, everybody should be doing stuff. I'm glad that they are. But what we're really trying to do is help people understand that to move the needle in government is a, you're going to have to go beyond a cause marketing campaign. I'd like to hear from you if you, what you take to be the sort of most important things that you think each of us could be doing to make a difference or an impact on some of these issues. Mm-hmm. Well, I think the, the biggest thing is not being afraid of getting involved with government. I think it's like, okay, we're using reusable shopping bags and we're, re, um, you know, we're recycling and we're trying. Uh, there's, you know, I mean, it's not, there, may, there are things that will happen because everybody decides to do them, like, the shopping bag thing, actually, it's pretty amazing that we should be glad about this incremental progress we've made on the shopping bags. Now, you know, bigger things are going to take government. And so being involved with government at any level, at the county level or the state level or the, or the federal level, is really important. And it's um, like right now, the group of freshman congressmen um, that are just got to D.C., basically, they're throwing up some good stuff. They're putting together some good laws. They're doing it in a crazy way, some of them. And um, we, if, if you believe in what they're doing, you need to support them. And it, it just really, it's, it's getting involved in the democracy is the most important thing because we're not going to solve it just by um, individual actions. I mean, we've got to work as a group, and the way we work as a group is through the government. This is this segment that we now call uh, Western versus Marcel Proust. Because if you, uh, I have a series of questions here and they're pretty hard. So you actually should probably hope they have questions for you. 
I have a series of questions that were written by a young Marcel Proust. If you don't have questions, she gets to hear these, and they're odd and kind of awesome and, and hard. So, Jeez, okay, y'all yeah. better think of stuff. We haven't a- asked a single Proust question in, in this series because the questions have come in so good. So I, I don't, I, they might be setting you up right now, I but uh, we'll, we'll see. Hey, Ashley. Um, so my question is, I'm curious, I finally went to Moab after not being there for about 15 years recently. And um, it's grown and there's new trails and it's great and cool. Um, it was interesting though, as I was climbing up a trail by myself, adjacent to me, was a four-wheeler, I don't even know what you call them. Is it a Side by sides. Yeah, and um, it was kind of cool because we each had our own trail. And so the trails did cross, but there was no, you know, nobody got in anybody's way. And um, it was interesting to see, because I know that was the, the more motorized stuff was such a big thing, uh, maybe initially, and then bikes came in and seemed to kind of totally overtake it. Um, what have you seen by living there or probably helped to um, make happen so that, th- that those recreational groups get along and, yeah. and get the things that they want. Yeah. Well, so traditionally, in, when you look at like public land, like we've been managing these polygons, like here's a national park, here are the rules in the national park, here's a national forest, here are the rules there, here's some BLM land, here's the rules there. And then it ends up being pretty, pretty rough right? Because the user groups do not necessarily play well with others. Like they, they interfere with each other. And, but what we're finding is if we're pivoting towards managing experiences inside those polygons. So what is the experience that you're trying to offer? So in Moab, we built in the resource management plan, wonky word, but that's the plan for the BLM. And if you don't have something in the plan, you can't do it because the law says we have to do what's in the plan. So learning about planning is really important. Um, so we got in the new plan, 150 miles of purpose-built single track. And so that allowed us to separate the use of motorized. And so we went from just throwing everyone in there and saying, do your thing to, okay, what type of experiences do we want to provide? So when we looked at building that 150 miles, it was Captain Ahab and you know some really fun stuff. And then we also needed introductory stuff and kid-friendly stuff and family-friendly stuff and longer point-to-point stuff. And some of it, uh, you know, the, some of those trails have become super popular. Some of them, it's like, yeah, that was, why did we build that? Um, <laughs> so, um, but that learning about that and getting the product mix right and, and making sure that one user group isn't interfering with another is mission critical because if you if you put the business lens on it and look at it and say you come to Moab and you are expecting to have a good mountain biking experience we need to deliver on that and if we let the user groups and the same thing for the motorized community they're coming and they're expecting to have a special um, experience so that's that's the main way that I think it's working most places is really look at the different experiences build separate trails when you need to um, and it's making it possible to do quite a lot. Again, not everybody gets everything that they want, but you get a lot that way, so. Yeah. Hey, Ashley, my name's Peter. Um, I do some work for the Access Fund, so I know Jason. Oh, great. Yep, and uh, he told me to ask you a hard question. (laughs) Hopefully it's not too hard, but familiar with High Country News, I assume? Oh, yeah. Um, Are you familiar with those two articles that came out last year? I think one was titled, you're, you're, are stoked won't save us? Yeah. And there's rebuttal to that as well? Right, yes. 
Will our stoke save us? <laughs> yes, if you also get involved in government. If you, it, it's, it's sort of like you don't want to be um, like Edward Abbey cautioned everyone, like, don't get too worked up about it. you got to remember to go out there and have fun. But the inverse is true, too. If all you do is go out there and have fun and your trail gets closed somehow, some way, either because there's so many hikers in your county, they decide, you know, actually, we'd rather just have hikers on this trail. Or they decide, yeah, we do need the oil and gas from this trailhead, so you're out of here. So however you could lose your trail, like if you're 100% stoke and no advocacy, then you kind of deserve what you get. If, if you don't want to be 100% advocacy and not have the stoke, so it's about the balance. So yes, it can save us, but we have to, we have to act. We can't just do that. Um, hi, I'm Ellie. Hi. Um, I am an environmental studies major in policy, so I just want to say what you're doing is pretty cool. Um, and I just was wondering if you have any recommendations for like organizations or programs to get um, involved with as like a college student that is like related to what you're doing. Yeah, that is a great question, and um, there are there are a lot, like the Sierra Club has a lot of programs, more programs, the bigger traditional environmental organizations, and really the outdoor industry needs more, and there are a couple, there's, um, there's different foundations that are funding jobs at certain places and internships, that kind of thing, but I think there's a big opportunity to do a lot more and um, uh, make it easier because, we're, you know, Every, like you guys especially are ready to start solving the problem and we need to really get you, the, get you in the door so that you can. So there isn't a perfect one right now except for with some of the big environmental organizations. But I think really that's kind of the trick. Like if you just go around saying keep the oil in the ground, you're not really part of the solution, right? So we really have to start working on the details and we should, there should be more. So um, it's on the list to, to make happen. I hear you that we need to make a more entry level stuff. And I think there are a lot of places thinking about this now. So, uh, I guess, how are you guys working to, are we have adaptive biking and all that Yeah. Our company, Western spirit does, uh, has worked with a couple of different adaptive, um, programs and we've done some pretty amazing trips with um, all kinds of athletes and uh, they're really tough. And um, I mean, the athletes are tough, it's amazing. And um, I think that that's, you know, a lot of people are, there is a lot of work being done on trying to make it more accessible. I still think it's too hard. And the other big problem is the diversity piece. I mean, that's a huge piece that we're all just kind of banging our heads against the wall. Everyone's like, oh, we should be more diverse. And that's going to be a political reality, too, that, that this idea that only the cool kids do X, and they do it this, and they wear these clothes, and they use this gear, and that's the cool kids, and we don't care about everyone else. Like, bringing every type of diverse group from ad adaptive athletes to diverse, all that, all of that, um, we, need to be, we need to be more inclusive as a recreation community. And there are some shining examples, but they're probably too few. We need more. Um, for, so back to the diversity, you mentioned it. Have you come across any strategies to help? Because I 
we've talked about it in a lot of our classes recently. It's like the outdoor industry in itself is not a very diverse place. Is there any strategies you've come across or anything that has helped that? Yeah, there, there's, a, there's a bunch of new groups and um, like black girls hike and brown girls climb. And there are these, the, the folks are coming together. And I think what we're looking to do is reach out and see what's going on with them and how, what problems they have. I mean, our expertise at Public Land Solutions is access. So we would, we're looking for some projects that we could do to help them. It, it is it, like if that, this certain group that's in LA, if they say we need more places to go that are easier to get to, we could maybe start to look at how you would go about making it easier to get to the trailhead or move the trailhead closer in. Like, how do you get, um, you know, that, uh, uh, what's the name of it? That rail line in New York City that they turned into a hiking trail by putting mm -hmm. plants all along that elevated line. Mm -hmm. Like, how could you make the hike start at a closer place? So start. it's really about providing services to certain populations, really, because they aren't all going to just, like you don't go from nothing in a city to suddenly doing a five-day backpacking trip in Colorado, right? So how do you provide the entry-level stuff to get people involved? It, it's super hard. I mean, like just getting someone on your board who's diverse, like is that really winning? Did you really do anything with that? Like, um, or, you know, there's been a lot of work getting inner-city kids outside and you raise all this money and you do this huge thing, but in the end you just got 30 kids outside. Is that really moving the needle? So it is still really hard, but I think um, we, we have to keep doing it because otherwise um, there's a million reasons. One, because it's the right thing to do and it's good to share and it's good to get folks out. But the other reason is as the voting populations change, if we didn't introduce everyone to the out of doors, then, then we're going to be in this tiny minority of people who care about the out of doors. And then guess what? It's a democracy. They're going to, it's not going to be a priority. So it's, it's really important and it's, there's no easy answer, but we just have to keep, keep trying. And so these groups that have come up, we're doing a lot to support them. Have you had any success, um, like finding good overlap with, with oil and gas and recreation? Right. Yes, actually. So in Moab, one of the projects that we did is called a master leasing plan, which was um, like the reality is that the resource extraction people have all the rights. Like they came first before recreation, and the whole system was created to incentivize them to take the risk because at the time it's like well we want lights and we want hot water and we need to if, if the oil and gas people are going to go uh, take that risk and invest all that money the public land system really helps them and you can say well that's terrible we're subsidizing oil and gas well you have to look at the history like we all thought that was a good idea 50 years ago so now we've got the system where they're leasing these parcels and you will be scared if you look at all the parcels that are leased, not developed, but, but they're leased so they could be developed. It's pretty frightening. A lot of the Moab area has been leased and there's a chunk of like, but they aren't all getting developed. But the system is to spread out the risk. It's a little bit like venture capital, like everyone leases these different parcels. And if, if there's this middleman leasing them and that person only the way that person makes money is just by selling one or two of them. 
So there's this whole ingrained system. And, the, and once we as Americans give someone a lease, they have a right. And you can't just go back and say, yeah, that, we're canceling that lease. So it's, a, it's very tricky. But if you work with, we did work with the major developer in the Moab area, and we said, okay, you don't want to have a fight with us because we, we'll, we're going to besmirch your name. Like we're going <laughs> to... We're going to make a big stink about how you're ruining mountain biking in Moab. And so instead, let's just, why don't you just tell us where you need surface occupancy? Because they can directionally drill. So if they use existing leases and existing well pads even to directionally drill, you can actually give them the right to the oil without disturbing the surface. But traditionally, they wouldn't want to tell you that because it's a proprietary secret. So there's all this... The, the rights that they have, the fact that they're running a business, that they're spending all this money. But when they realize that the community, there's going to be protests, there's going to be lawsuits, and it would be better to just work it out in advance. And that's what the master leasing plan is. It was explaining where the tra trails were, where the trails were planning to be, and then figuring out where they needed surface occupancy and just doing coordination and putting the road like you don't want the trail to cross the road 20 times, you know, so working the roads in so that we, so you can do it. You just have to do that detailed work. And if you find a company that is respectful and gets it and doesn't want the bad PR, yes, you can work with them. We are going to wrap up shortly. And I, often uh, turns out to those listening to the the podcast these conversations end up going for quite a while when we'll we'll all just go ahead and step out um, out of the out of this hall out there and and uh, I encourage you to come say hi to Ashley, ask any other questions that may have come up. Um, so we will do that. But I do feel like it would be fitting. We've invoked Proust so much through this series. I think we should go out on two Proust questions. No, and these are two. Th these are not. These are these are actually just great questions. Okay. So. I think you got this. Um, yeah, I think we should give Proust the final final questions. Um, the first, that he wrote at the age of 13, what do you regard as the lowest depth of misery? <laughs> <laughs> it's a good question. Think about it. Well, for a minute I had this image of um, backcountry skiing in Canada in a bad snowstorm and being the last person and really wondering if I was going to make it back. But then my skiing, well, a guy that I was skiing with asked me if I needed a poem. I was like, yes, yes, I need a poem. <laughs> <laughs> and he recited the Robert Service poem called The Quitter. And then I learned it on that. So I guess that wasn't, nope. it ended up being fun. Yeah, that's a so, terrible answer. Yeah, it was a terrible answer. Yeah. No, the depths of misery. Well, would, right now, I mean, it would be for us to not rise to the occasion and wreck the planet and uh, go extinct. Hmm. I mean, we're kind of on track hmm. for that. So that's going to be some pretty deep misery that Proust didn't even imagine, yeah, that we would be. use up the earth. Right. Might be right. Much better answer Thanks. and a sobering <laughs> one. Um, last question. What is your idea of earthly happiness? That same backcountry skiing experience. Yeah, getting a poem <laughs> when you might not make it out of the backcountry. Yeah, that's right. Um, well, I think one of our problems right now is we all spend a lot of time in fight or flight. And I had even not even heard this, and I just heard it like a couple weeks ago. We're supposed to spend more time in rest and digest. 
Well, it's like we've forgotten how. We, you know, we're constantly scanning the horizon for the next threat, the next problem. We're looking at our phone. What's the next thing that we got to solve? And so the question was earthly happiness, right? Mm -hmm. I think it would be spending more time and, you know, rest and digest and, and enjoy. It's, it's being in the moment and being happy about that moment and not, not uh, being so worried about the next thing all the time. Like we've organized our lives so that the next thing is always in our face and that's not mm -hmm. good. Maybe not a bad way to end this series. So um, thanks to all of you once again for the good questions. And thank you so much, Ashley, for coming. Oh, thank you for and, having um, me. And this has really been a, a privilege to once again get to hear what you have to say and to learn from your experience. You are going to continue, I think, to be at the forefront of a lot of this. And we are grateful for that. So thank well, you. Thank all of you for being here. Thanks, all. Yeah. That's it for this edition of the Blister Podcast. Thanks to everyone who came out to Western and to those of you who asked such good questions. Thanks also to Ashley Kornblatt for the excellent conversation. And you can check out her guiding company, Western Spirit Cycling, at westernspirit.com and her nonprofit, Public Land Solutions, at publiclandsolutions.org. And I want to say a huge thank you to Western Colorado University for hosting and to the many people at Western who helped with scheduling and the logistics and the audio at these events. It's been a fantastic experience. I am incredibly impressed with what is going on at Western these days, and we look forward to doing more and more with the Western community in the days and months ahead. And just a heads up, next week we will be posting a very special Mother's Day edition of the Blister podcast that you won't want to miss. And until that podcast comes out, be sure to check out all the other podcasts we're putting out these days on the Blister podcast network. So that includes Gear 30, Off the Couch, All Things Climbing, and our newest edition, Bikes and Big Ideas. And of course, you can find all of these podcasts on the Blister website, or on your favorite podcast player, app, or platform. Thanks, everybody. Take good care out there, and we will talk to you again next week.